Let's uh, open up our Bibles to the letter to the Colossians, which hopefully uh, you were reading. So you're kind of, you already know a little bit about what it's about. Um, but this is really what I, what I want, what I want to do. I want to go through letters like this because this letter is just extraordinary. Really excited about it. Um, it's, it's really shaped and impacted me a lot, and I hope it's done the same for you. And this is kind of why I started doing this Bible reading challenge, because I wanted to get God's Word into my mind and think about it and think about what it was saying in the message of each and every letter. Um, let's pray before we be, uh, begin here, and then we'll dive right in. Dear God in heaven, we thank you so much for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the riches and the glory that come through Him. Uh, we are thankful And we rejoice in him and the truth and power that comes through him. And we pray that you would continue to um, um, reshape and reform our thinking about our lives based on the truth of the gospel through this letter to the Colossians. We pray all this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen. Let's be honest. uh, Spiritual self-help books sell. Um, if you go to Barnes and Noble, you will find, if Barnes and Noble is even still open, you will find a whole row on spiritual self-help. Now, it's a mixture of a lot of different religious philosophy and religions, right? You'll find a lot of Hindu spiritual self-help. You'll, you'll find a lot of, you know, pseudo-Christian self-help. You'll, you'll find a lot of books that are promising you a better spiritual life. Everybody is interested in these things, too. And, and it, it sells, because everybody wants to find happiness. Everybody wants to find contentment. Everybody wants to find peace. Everybody wants to find joy. So we go to bookstores, and we look at the cover and the back of the cover, and we ask ourselves a question, will this book make me better? And that's why they sell. This person, this picture of this person that writes this book, he, he sure looks happy. He sure looks peaceful. He must have it figured out. Now, these books promise all sorts of things. They promise spiritual secrets that will unlock your life. They, they promise you to this feeling of power and of control in your life. Uh, They promise you peace and happiness, particularly when you look at Hindu books or those books that are of the Hindu persuasion, right? Do you want peace? Do you want joy? Do you want happiness? Uh, Take these meditative principles. Learn from this guru. Um, And another reason why these books sell is because people, particularly humans we seem to be, just absolutely obsessed with finding any other solution to our spiritual problem than the solution that God offers us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the gospel seems too foolish. It seems too simple. There must be something else. There must be something in me, some secret that I need to unlock that is truly the answer to all of my Problems. So uh, we see this a lot today. We see these books that blend this this pseudo sounding Christianese with like Eastern mystic religions, and they sound really good, right? Find find this truth inside of you. Yeah, that, that sounds good. As a matter of fact, I could point to a verse in the letter of Colossians that it kind of sounds like, right? In you, some secret is found. 
but it's false. It's a, it's a mixing. It's a blending of all sorts of religions. And, and kind of the philosophy that, that kind of builds up books like this is, hey, you should try. You should try things that work. You, you should you should mix as many kinds of religions as you can together to give you the the greatest spiritual advantage. The more religions you mix, the more power you'll have. Right? Because the the more religion, the better. Right? And this is kind of the idea behind all of these books and these these shelves of books. And, and believe it or not, when you look at that that shelf at Barnes and Noble or wherever. You can find such things. Um, you will see probably a situation in your culture that is very similar to the situation that the the, the church uh, at Colossae was facing. They were facing some sort of false teaching, whether it was just a false teaching in their culture like we have, or false teachers that were in their church trying to spread this news. They were facing this false teaching that was trying to kind of bring in Jewish mythology, Greek mythology, all of these practices, and make it sound a little bit Christian. Um, and and they, they did try to bring it in here, and they promised a better life. And you could tell these were false teachers because of their view of Scripture, their view of, and their view of the Savior, right? They diminished the, the deity and the humanity of Christ, they diminished it. They diminished it. That's what these people were facing. And this is also what we face often in our culture, too, in this area as well. Let's, let's, as we open up Colossians, let me just uh, show you a slide here to just kind of give you a little bit of background information. Oh, boy. Now, where did that slide come from? I don't know how that's there. Is there a... Am I in the wrong section? Sorry. Um, You're good. Am I good? Yep. Is it? We started on like the last one. Yeah, okay, sorry. All right, so let's try that one. Okay, so let's just a little bit of background information. Um, this was written, now what? We have a problem. Now we have a problem? It's not casting. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Uh, there we go. That was right after you say it. No, I don't know. This is kind of cool. It's kind of like retro. It's kind of like. <laughs> Like this is you pay millions of dollars to get your TV to do these nowadays, right? It looks broken. Uh, the appearance of age is really cool, right? Uh, okay, uh, we might not be able to do a slideshow. That's okay. That's okay. Just all to say, uh, the letter to the Colossians was written by Paul to the Colossians. There you go. Bam. Um, it was written during his imprisonment in Rome. Matter of fact, it was probably written around the same time that Ephesians was written. And Philemon was written. You can tell this because um, they sound similar. Matter of fact, my dad used to explain them to me. Ephesians is about the, or sorry, Philippian, uh, Colossians is about the head of the body, and Ephesians is about the body of the head. Anyway, so, um, but also you can tell in the background information, kind of in the back, that Colossians was, was sent to the Colossians through Tychicus in 4.7 and Onesimus. He was actually a slave of Philemon. Um, and this same man was also the one that sent or, or carried the letter to the Ephesians as well. 
So Paul wrote all of these letters probably around the same time and sent them through the same couriers. And so they sound similar. And Colossae is close to Ephesus. I mean, it's 100 miles away. Now, as you see from the letter to the Colossians, um, Paul had never actually seen the Colossians face-to-face, as it tells us in chapter 2, verse 1. But he knew of their faith, and as it says in 1, 3 through 8, he thanked God for the work that God had done in their life. And now he writes them to address this kind of issue that they were facing with this kind of syncretistic religion um, tendency that was apparent in the city of Colossians. And he, and he writes them first off in a very simple way, just like Ephesians. You could, you could split up um, Colossians into two parts, right? Uh, chapter 1 all the way through 2, 5 is doctrine about what you have received in Christ, and then chapter 2, 6, all the way through 4, 6 is application, how you should walk since you have received Christ Jesus. But we're going to break down, we're going to break down the letter into three parts, just because it helps me kind of think through it a little bit more. We're going to break it down like this. Um, Paul writes about what you most need. Number two, Paul writes about what you have already received in the gospel. And number three, Paul writes about how you must live in light of what you have received. That's what we're going to kind of talk about in the letter to the Colossians. Um, Basically, uh, Paul's just basically going to unpack something called a mystery. A mystery of the Christian life. That is very important for you if you want to grow in spiritual maturity. But let's break it down. Let's, let's, let's talk about it in these three parts. Number one, what you most need. What you most need, Paul is going to show you, is spiritual growth. If you are in Christ Jesus, you need spiritual maturity. And here we have in chapter 1, verse 9, all the way through verse 14, an example of Paul's prayers. And notice this is an example of how you should pray for someone you don't really know. This is an example of how you should pray when you don't really know how to pray for someone. This is a great prayer to learn and practice. How do you pray for someone when you're not totally sure what they need prayer for? You could ask them. That's a very good way to do it. But you could also just turn to Colossians 1 and pray this prayer. Let's, let's see what it has to say. This prayer is a prayer for spiritual maturity. It is a prayer that you'd increase in wisdom and in strength. In wisdom and in strength. The first, the first part of this prayer is this. Um, you should pray that the person you're praying for, you should pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You see that there in verse 1, uh, verse 9 of chapter 1. Uh, We do not cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You may be filled. What does that word mean? It means you are completely controlled and dominated by this knowledge. You are filled up with it, right? This is the dominating knowledge in your life. And notice... You are filled up with a knowledge, a kind of knowledge that dominates. This is not just information, but this is wisdom. You are are filled up with knowledge and the wisdom of how to apply that knowledge in your life. You know how to apply theology. Paul is not just asking that the Colossians know theology more. 
He's asking that they know how to live in light of theology, in light of the truth of the gospel more. That's what he is praying for them. He is asking for them to grow in wisdom. And you can see this in how he describes knowledge, um, the knowledge of his will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And what, what will this result in? This is the next part of Paul's prayer. Not only that they may be filled with the knowledge of God, but also uh, that they'd have a life fully pleasing to God. The result of the wisdom of God in your life is that your life will become more pleasing to God. Your life will become more pleasing to God. Verse 10, uh, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You walk in a manner worthy. You walk. That is an expression, a metaphor for the Christian life. It assumes that you are following Christ who has called you to follow him. You follow after him in obedience. You walk. That is the Christian life. And and notice also how he explains this here. You are bearing fruit. You are connected to Christ as a plant is is kind of connected to the root, right? You are bearing fruit, fruitful in the vine, so to speak. And you are also, notice, increasing in the knowledge of him. A, a growing Christian is a sponge. A growing Christian is a knowing Christian. You're always growing more and more and learning more and more things. There never is a point where you are a growing Christian and you're not learning at the same time. You're constantly learning. You're constantly a sponge soaking in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, but we can't do any of this in our own strength. So notice Paul not only asks that they would grow in the knowledge of God, not only asks that they become more pleasing as a result, but he also asks that God would give them the power and strength to do these things. Wisdom is, wisdom is power, Right? But this power, it does not come from you. It does not start with you. So this is the third part of Paul's prayer. Pray that they'd be strengthened to know uh, Christ and live in wisdom. With Notice what he says there, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Notice, with all power. There is no power to be found apart from the power that you can find in God. There is no power that you need that can be found outside of God. All the power you need is in God. All the power you need for growth is from God with all power. And notice, it is God's power according to his glorious might. This is not a power apart from Christ or found somehow in you. This is, this is found in Christ and Christ alone. I love that, right? It, um, prayers for spiritual growth are really dependent prayers. They're prayers saying, God, I am weak. God, I need you to fill my mind with your truth. And God, I need you to strengthen my mind to understand that truth. And you, I need you to strengthen my will to obey that truth. That is a prayer of spiritual growth, a prayer for wisdom and a prayer for strength. And notice, what does this strength look like as he's praying there in verse 11? May you be strengthened. What, what, is that, what does that turn out to look like? It means you have endurance. Notice, for all endurance and patience, right? That is what spiritual strength looks like. You continue in the faith. 
Notice also it's patience. Notice also it is joy. Endurance is not just this stoic, well, I'll just tough it out until I'm done. Even in the hardest struggle, there is joy. That is what strength from God comes from. Strength from you comes like, I'll just tough it out until it's done. Strength from God comes with joy. And notice it comes with joy because another aspect of this strength is it comes and produces thanksgiving in your life. See that in verse 12? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. You live your whole entire life giving thanks to God. And that's why you endure. That's why you have joy. That's why you wait with patience because you know and you believe that it will be worth it all. And this starts in your mind, in how you think and what you fill your mind with, right? And that, that thinking in your mind shapes your behavior and it's strengthened by God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that profound? That is a great prayer to pray when you don't know what to pray. Go home and pray that for yourself, right? I'm going to be a little selfish with this prayer. This sounds like a great prayer. That is one of my favorite prayers. Um, Next up, after praying for what they need, notice, then Paul immediately goes into explaining what you have. Or, as I want to put it here for your notes, what you have already received. The key verse in Colossians is 2.6. Um, 2.6, this is the key verse in Colossians. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Right? The, the first part of Colossians is, is talking all about what you have received. And the, the second part from 2.6 on of Colossians is talking about how you should walk. It's all right there in that verse. What have you received, though? What do you have? Paul has been praying for what they need, but now he wants to show them what they have in Christ Jesus, in the gospel. Now, to bring it back to the background kind of of this letter, remember, the false teachers are saying, you need to find this secret for life outside of where you are. You need to find it with us, right? You need to find it by, by reading this book, right? You need to find it by pursuing the traditions that, that we have kind of amassed and accumulated in our own wisdom. And Paul says in Colossians, you already have everything you need in Christ, right? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Uh, the false teachers are saying, you, you need something more than Christ. You need to add something to your Christian life to really, to really succeed in life. Paul is saying, you have everything you need in Christ Jesus. So walk. So walk. Let's break down this answer of Paul's, um, that you have everything you need in two parts. Um, number one, say it this way, um, all spiritual wisdom and strength... All the spiritual wisdom and strength that you need are found in Christ Jesus. That's number one. All the spiritual strength and wisdom you need are found in Christ Jesus. Uh, Number one, because think about who Jesus is. And this is what one of the most amazing parts of the letter of Colossians. It explains. It shows you who Jesus is. He is preeminent. He is over. He is superior to all creation. He is preeminent above all creation. You see this in verse 15 of chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. 
the image that speaks to him being the full, the complete, the perfect representation of God to you. Right? In the ancient world, rulers would put up images of themselves to remind their subjects, hey, I'm here. And you belong to me. And I just want to remind you that I'm present by this image. Now, it was an imperfect representation of that ruler. But God has given us a perfect image of himself that is Jesus himself. This is not just a, a close look alike. This is a, an exact image of God. Because notice what he says in 1 verse 19. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And he is also described in verse 15 as the firstborn. Now some people want to say firstborn kind of sounds like he was created, like there was a time when he wasn't. But that's not what he is saying because the language of firstborn is, is, is a title of rank, of position. If you're the firstborn, that means you own everything, you possess everything in the family, and you will one day rule over everything if you are the firstborn. It's a title of rank, of preeminence. Um, and matter of fact, Paul himself will go on to give you three kind of arguments for the superiority of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, kind of the deity of Christ, even in this very section right here. And we see this through his use of prepositions, you know, prepositions in, by, around, through, unto, all these kinds of words, these little small words. That's a preposition. And Paul unpacks who Jesus is through prepositions. So... Don't ever think that small words are unimportant. Theology is rooted in prepositions. Verse 16, notice, for by him, or you see perhaps a footnote in your Bible, in him, that's a preposition, in, in him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. Or we could say it like this, he, Jesus, possesses the wisdom of God. All creation was by his design, and by his plan, and by his order. It was his creative power that, that thought up creation, that is, Jesus Christ, in him. But notice also, he possesses the power of God as well. You have to look at the very end of verse 16 to see this, but see this. All things were created through him. Through him, or by him. That's the preposition being used there. He is the power of God on display. I love how John 1.3 talks about this. It says, all things were created through him and by him, and there was nothing made that was made. So that kind of means, in my mind, that's simple, I know, that Christ can't be created if he created all things that were created. That's John 1.3, though. Um, he possesses the power and might of God. He possesses, thirdly, the worship of God, the exclusive worship of a God that demanded that no other being be worshipped other than him. Christ Jesus owns, possesses the worship of God. Notice what he says in the third preposition there in verse 16. All things were created through him and for him, unto him. Creation was made to bring him praise. It was the purpose of creation to praise and worship Christ the Creator. That's what Paul is saying there in verse 16. 
He possesses the wisdom of God, the power of God, the worship of God. And then notice verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains everything. He is the start of everything. And I ask you, the one who possesses all of those things, who is he other than God, right? He is not a lesser being. He is God himself. And all wisdom, spiritual strength and wisdom are found in him. And notice also, Paul goes on to quickly say, not only is he uh, preeminent over all creation, he's also preeminent over the church. You get this as he goes on in verses 18 all the way down through 23. He is your Savior, verse 21 tells you. He is your Savior. He has purchased you, pardoned you. He is your head and your Lord, it says in verse 18. He is... He is your sanctifier. Verse 22, he is working to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Or all to say, all that you need for true and effective spiritual growth and maturity are found in Christ. He is the strength of God and the wisdom of God. But Paul has something rich to add to this as well. He's not quite done here. Jesus is not just some far-off Lord, some not, not just some distant head. He is intimate, and He is close to you. He is very present with you. He is intimately close, very connected, because you are His body. Not only, not only do we see that all that we need for wisdom and strength is found in Christ, but notice we also see in Colossians a wonderful truth, all of Christ is found or takes up residence in you, the believer. Total wisdom, total strength takes up residence in you. Paul explains the importance of his ministry, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 1, and why he's doing it. He is working to make known the mystery of Christ. And what is the mystery of Christ? The the mystery of Christ is Christ in you, the hope of of glory. You see this in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. A mystery there is not saying, hey, this is just for a select few people. A mystery there is explaining that, hey, this was hidden. This was hidden before now. The people didn't know what God was up to in the person of the Messiah, but now it's being revealed through the ministry of Paul. To, to all Christians, all Christians need to know this, that it is Christ in them, which notice the practical application, it, it, it creates in you a hope for glory. I, I am assured that when he comes, I will see him and I will become like him. And also it is this this hope inside of you that he will sanctify me completely in his wisdom and his sufficient strength, right? Because he's in me. He's intimately connected to me because I am a part of his body. He is close. 
you have everything you need in Christ Jesus. Now, perhaps that helps you understand a bit of the urgency of Paul when he says in chapter 2, verse (laughs) 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you or deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit and rejoicing to see your good order and firmness in your faith in Christ. Paul is concerned that they're going to go after some other form of religion to try to pursue holiness when they have Christ in them himself. And now, of course, he pivots to more practical focus, as we've talked about. And let's, let's talk about this now, right? How should you live? Number three, how should you live in light of who is living in you through the power and the person of the Holy Spirit? How must you live? How must you walk? Paul gives you two kind of two basic statements, two thrusts that he makes here. This is incredible. You must walk with complete theological peace. And you must walk with complete practical diligence. Those are the two things that Paul says here in the end of Colossians. The irony of the gospel-rooted life is this, right? You have strength and ability to work and labor for Christ's likeness like never before. Because you have complete peace and assurance of your salvation, right? You you don't get it the other way around. You don't labor to have peace and assurance. You labor because you have peace and assurance. That is the irony of the Christian life. Let's look at these two thrusts very briefly here. First off, in this how you should live section that kind of ends the letter, you should walk with complete theological peace. Complete peace in the sufficiency and the assurance that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to say here in 2, 8, all the way through 23, things like, don't be made anxious by people who are trying to intimidate you by their spirituality. Don't be anxious that you're missing out on something by these man-made systems of religion and these human philosophies. These things seem wise, they seem like they're effective, but you know what they are? Look at what he says in verse 17. They are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. They seem wise, they seem super spiritual, but in the end they're just a shadow. And they're passing, and they're ineffective. Notice also what he says in verse 23. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That's just basically depriving yourself of things to try to please God. And the severity to the body. But notice this. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You want to know the big hindrance to your spiritual life? unconfessed sins of the heart and of the life. And and these human practices have all of this wisdom or appearance of wisdom because they gloss over that. And they try to make you think and feel good about yourself and all of the potential you have. But in reality, they're just whitewashing over a dead grave, right? They have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You need to be changed from the inside out. 
So that's what one of the things Paul says. Don't be anxious or be made anxious for this quest for spiritual more that some people are, are arguing for. He, he also will say, find your complete source in who you have received, as we've seen in 2 verse 6. You were rooted and built up. Notice two metaphors there. Rooted, you were like a branch in the vine that finds its life completely from the vine. Now, what you can do, you can be a branch that tapes yourself to a tree, and, it will, and you'll look great for a while. I've used this metaphor before, right? What if I wanted an apple tree in my backyard? There's two options, right? I could tape a bunch of apples to my tree in the backyard. It would look great, and it would be quick. I'd have apples in my backyard. But then in about three days, I'd have not-so-nice-looking apples in my backyard. And then after about a month, I would have just ugh, disgusting apples in my backyard if there's anything left from all the worms and the ants that have eaten them, right? You, you can tape things on, but notice if you want true life, you have to be connected to the spiritual source of life, and that's Jesus himself. That's a vine. But notice also, you are rooted and built up in him. There's also a metaphor here of a building. You only find stability in a sure foundation, and Jesus is the only spiritual foundation on which you can build. And notice also what he says, I love in the end of verse 6, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in what? Thanksgiving. We talked about this before in verse 10 of chapter 1, right? Thanksgiving. The believer is safe from false teaching if the believer is abounding in thanksgiving. And the believer also probably does the most fighting against sin when he or she is abounding in thanksgiving as well. Uh, Sin tries to make you look on what you don't have. The gospel and the sanctification that comes from it comes from abounding and rejoicing in the truth and the glories that you do have in Christ. Right? And notice all the things Paul says here in this chapter 2. This chapter 2 is amazing. But notice all the things that he says that are true of you because you are in Christ. Verse 11 says, you are given a new heart. You are given a new heart. Heart. And he uses this idea of circumcision. You have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You've been given a new heart. Romans 2.29 talks about having this inward circumcision of the heart by the Spirit of God that, that makes you desire and willing to obey the truth of God from the heart, as Romans 6.17 would say, right? That's what you need. You need a new heart to desire new things and good things. That's what you truly need. I, I love so many of you because you have this desire to obey. And it's not because you've been caught. It's not because you're trying to please God or get Him to accept you into heaven. You have this desire to obey because your new heart is on display. You have been given a heart, and you now want new things. And notice also, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, you have been given a new life. The old you was buried with Christ, and a new you has raised with Him through faith. By the power of God, in verse 12b, it says, it's the same power that raised Jesus 
from the dead at work in you. And sometimes I think we don't totally realize how powerful that power is. Do you realize that Jesus was cold and dead in the grave for three days? He was absolutely dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was all the way dead. Cold in the grave. And the power of God raised him up. And it says here in verse 12, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead spiritually raises you to a new life. You have been given a new life. Notice also, you have been given complete forgiveness. Verse 13, there was this record of debt, this judgment record that belonged to you, that had your name on it. And that was plunged into the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So all of the sin that you deserve judgment for was put on Christ. That's what it's saying there in 13 and 14. You don't need to work off anything if Christ is the one that has paid your debt, right? You have complete peace in Christ, right? That's practical, right? don't need to worry. I don't need to seek after something else. I have complete theological peace in Christ. But quickly, notice also in verse, in chapter 3, he also says, walk also with complete practical diligence. And he says this, this, this little word there, once again, the mystery of the little words is very important. Verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. This is presenting an argument that's an assumption of truth. Hey, if these things are true, how should you walk? You should, you should walk like this. What? What is true? Why should you work with practical diligence in your life? Well, you are new. We talked about that, right? You have been raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ spiritually. You are different. You are different and changed in your thinking, in your priorities, in your mind, in your desires. You are different. How should you live if you're different, if you're new? And notice also, you should live with complete practical diligence because, to say it again, you are hidden with Christ in God. That's what he says in, in verse 3. It's so important you should read it. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are hidden. You are concealed. You are safe. Notice this. You do not labor and work and war against your sin from a position of insecurity with God. You do it from a position of infinite security in Christ. You are hidden with Christ in heaven. And and notice, you will be instantly with him when he comes as well, as he says in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. You labor with love and desire for him to come because you you love him. And you want to be with him. You can't wait for that day when you will be with him as he is. And, And notice this. When he comes, he will want to be with you too. Because he died to purchase your pardon and forgive your sins. He's not going to put you in solitary confinement for a while to let you kind of clean up your life. No, he's coming and he wants to be with you in person. And that actually motivates you to live with practical diligence, with work. What does 
such a gospel-rooted and grounded life look like? We're going to get a few snapshots here from Paul because we just don't have enough time to go into it. But notice just a few snapshots of the gospel-driven and rooted life. Number one, it is driven by a new perspective, right? You have an attitude shift, right? You, pers- you, you, you evaluate things and choices and attitudes of your life and actions of your life based on how is this going to look from eternity? Am I going to look back on this decision in my heart and in my life and say, man, I really regret that? And you say, no, I don't want any part of that. You, have, you are driven by a new perspective. You're also filled with anticipation, as we saw in verse 3. This is a, a purifying kind of hope, as it says in 1 John 3, 3. It, 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 it purifies you just by hoping in Christ's return. And also, another aspect of the gospel-rooted life is it mortifies sin in all of its manifestations. It mortifies sin in kind of the action of sin, but also you seek to kill and destroy and weaken sin in the heart level as well. I love verse 5 because it talks about this. You, you put to death what is earthly in you. And then it starts at the most external the most outward and goes all the way to the most internal sexual immorality. Yes, you fight against sexual immorality, but that's not the only thing you fight against. You also fight against impurity, passions, evil desire. And notice this, you fight against the heart attitude that is responsible for sexual immorality itself. Covetousness. The desire for something that is not yours. You want to know where your sexual sin comes from? It comes from a heart that is covetous. And you see, that is idolatry, and you repent of it, and you turn from it instantly. It's also a life that is new and continually being renewed. You see this in verse 9. Breathtaking thought here in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing you have put off the old self and its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. You are not perfect yet, but you are certainly new And notice this, growth comes from an increasing knowledge in your life. Does that sound familiar? Well, it sounds a lot like his prayer in chapter 1, 9 and 10, right? Yeah, Paul's consistent. And notice this, once again, growth and change begins in your mind. And it also continues as your mind is filled and your will follows after what is in your mind. Here's two prayers you should pray for growth and change. Ask Jesus to give you knowledge to change. And then ask Jesus to give you power to change according to that knowledge. That is a prayer for spiritual sanctification in your life. This, another snapshot of this new life that you have. It's, it's a constant replacement of the attitudes and actions that you used to have with the attitudes and actions that Christ has. You you notice there in verse 12 all the way down through verse 14, you're putting on all these things, and they all look a lot like Christ, right? Love, kindness, patience, humility, all of these things have a a Christ-like look to them. And that's because you are being built on Him. You're, You're rooted and grounded in Him. Right? You are going to take on his characteristics. Spoiler alert, the goal of the Christian life is Christ-likeness. It's also a flood of thanksgiving. That's what the Christian life is. Verse 15 all the way down through 17. Be thankful with thankfulness, giving thanks to God 
It is a flood of thanksgiving. And this is your safety and your security against false teaching and against sin. And finally, it transforms and touches every relationship in your life. Colossians 18, or 3.18, all the way through Colossians 4.1, is talking about these relationships that are transformed by the power of the gospel. That is the new newness of the Christian life that you have in Christ Jesus. What else do you need? We don't have enough time, so I just want to close us in prayer right now. And then I want you to just quickly turn to your neighbor and just say one thing that you really appreciated that helped you in thinking about change. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you so much for this glorious letter to the Colossians. It's so helpful to us and how it informs true change in our life. And we pray that it would be impactful in causing the image of your son to be more recognizable in our images as well. Please transform us by the knowledge of Christ and by the power of Christ inside of us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.